Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. For our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the I-69 River Bridge. That's coming up later in the program. First, your environmental headlines. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency awarded three Indiana communities hundreds of thousands of dollars in grants to assess polluted properties and draw up plans for their cleanup. This is reported by the Indiana Environmental Reporter. Bloomington, Union City, and the town of Clarksville were selected to receive multi-purpose assessment and cleanup grants through the EPA's Region 5 Land Revitalization Program. EPA Deputy Administrator Janet McCabe, former director of Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute, said, quote, These cities are taking proactive steps to improve the environment and economic opportunity in their communities, and the agency's grants are helping the Biden administration deliver on its commitment to lifting up and protecting all communities, especially environmental injustice and underserved communities across America, end quote. Bloomington was awarded $300,000 to update the city's brownfield inventory, conduct up to 22 environmental site assessments, and develop up to 10 cleanup plans and support community outreach activities. According to the EPA, Bloomington's assessments will focus on the College Avenue Walnut Street corridor. Priority sites for the grants include the former site of the IU Health Bloomington Hospital and several other historically contaminated sites. Quote, the city of Bloomington is excited to receive a new EPA Brownfields grant to support the revitalization of our downtown, end quote, said Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton. The city has identified over 25 vacant or underutilized commercial and or industrial Brownfields properties located in low-income residential and or mixed-use areas as target properties for this grant. According to the Brown County Democrat, the Brown County Public Library is exploring the possibility of erecting an array of solar panels. The panels will be placed in the median of the library's lower parking lot in an effort to take advantage of utility incentives and renewable energy technologies and to cut electricity expenses by up to 98%. Under current plans, if the library goes ahead with the carport-style project, no additional tax funds will be required. The project is expected to pay for itself over a 15-year period. Financing would be realized by use of existing funds which have been saved over the years for improvement projects, plus a fundraising campaign or a low-interest loan. Plans call for the project to offset electricity bills, through the solar panels, conversion of existing lighting to LED, and other measures. 
The initial estimates put the cost of the project at about $600,000 to $750,000, depending on options chosen. Options could include installing chargers for electric cars, the LED retrofit, updating system controls, modifying the carport structure to provide covered parking beneath the panels, and annual operation and maintenance costs. About 325 solar panels in the project are expected to produce up to 162,000 kilowatt hours of electricity annually. If the board enters into a guaranteed savings contract with PSG this summer, the project could be completed by the end of the year. PSG is a privately owned company headquartered in Indianapolis. It was one of two firms which responded to the library's request for qualifications late last year. Quote, this project would be of significant operational cost savings for the library and allow us to reduce our carbon footprint at the same time. This would be a win for the entire community, end quote, said Story Snyder, library director. The Biden administration recently announced its support for a so-called production tax credit for 93 currently operating dangerously old nuclear reactors. The tax credit would increase costs for consumers and delay the implementation of new, cheaper renewable energy sources. The cost to taxpayers would reach $195 billion over the next decade. Friends of the Earth program manager Lucas Ross responded to the news, quote, a nuclear bailout is wrong for taxpayers, wrong for ratepayers, and wrong for the climate. Paying to keep aging reactors online is courting disaster and guaranteed to slow the deployment of truly clean renewables, end quote. The bailout would be on top of the many hundreds of billions of dollars in public subsidies granted to the nuclear power industry over recent decades. After the meltdowns of nuclear reactors in Chernobyl, Ukraine, and Fukushima, Japan, it's dismaying that public officials would consider trying to prop up that deadly, dying industry. President Biden, who talks often about investing in clean energy infrastructure, has the power to stop the liquid natural gas, or LNG, export boom. A new kind of fracking threat is the export of LNG, which is fracked gas, which has been supercooled to the temperature of minus 260 degrees Fahrenheit, where it converts to a liquid, highly explosive state. Currently, seven LNG export terminals are operating in the U.S., but over a dozen additional terminals and liquefaction plants have been proposed or are under construction in Florida, New Jersey, and Alaska, and across the Gulf Coast. Each one poses serious risks to public safety, human health, air, water, and the climate. LNG is classified as a hazardous material. Processing it releases air pollution, including benzene, mercury, ammonia, sulfuric acid, and particulate matter. Further, if the LNG leaks from the special refrigerated containers it must be stored in, it can expand quickly into a toxic, explosive cloud. People who live near LNG infrastructure, like liquefaction plants and export terminals, are at risk from LNG's health and safety dangers. 
Furthermore, some 40% of people who live within three miles of proposed LNG facilities are impoverished or people of color. LNG exports means more fracking, which means exacerbating the climate crisis as well as the local impacts. Today, we have a domestic gas glut that's making it harder for fracking companies to make a profit selling fracked gas domestically. Thus, the industry wants to open up more international markets so it can create more demand and justify more fracking. The growing risk of overlapping heat waves and power failures poses a severe threat that major American cities are not prepared for, new research suggests. Power failures have increased by more than 60% since 2015, even as climate change has made heat waves worse, according to the new research published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Using computer models to study three large U.S. cities, the authors estimated that a combined blackout and heat wave would expose at least two-thirds of residents in those cities to heat exhaustion or heat stroke. And although each of the cities in the study has dedicated public cooling centers for people who need relief from the heat, those centers could accommodate no more than 2% of a given city's population, the authors found, leaving an overwhelming majority of residents in danger. Quote, a widespread blackout during an intense heat wave may be the deadliest climate-related event we can imagine, end quote, said Brian Stone, Jr., a professor at the School of City and Regional Planning at Georgia Institute of Technology and the lead author of the study. Yet such a scenario is increasingly likely, he said. Climate change is happening all around the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency said on Wednesday. And in many cases, the change is speeding up. The freshly compiled data, the federal government's most comprehensive and up-to-date information yet, shows that a warming world is making life harder for Americans in ways that threaten their health and safety, homes and communities. It comes as the Biden administration is trying to propel aggressive action at home and abroad to cut the pollution that is raising global temperatures. Quote, there is no small town, big city or rural community that is unaffected by the climate crisis. End quote. Michael S. Reagan the EPA administrator, said on Wednesday, quote, Americans are seeing and feeling the impacts up close with increasing regularity, end quote. The data released last Wednesday came after a four-year gap. Until 2016, the EPA regularly updated its climate indicators, but under President Donald J. Trump, who repeatedly questioned whether the planet was warming, the data was frozen in time. It was available on the agency's website, but was not kept current. The Biden administration revived the effort this year and added some new measures, pulling information from government agencies, universities, and other sources. The EPA used 54 separate indicators that, taken together, paint a grim picture. It maps everything from Lyme disease, which is growing more prevalent in some states as a warming climate expands the regions where deer ticks can survive, to the growing drought in the southeast that threatens the availability of drinking water, increases the likelihood of wildfires, but also reduces the ability to generate electricity from hydropower. 
Coal miners traditionally have opposed calls to mitigate the climate crisis because those calls entail ending fossil fuel extraction and burning, including that of coal. And coal miners are afraid of losing their jobs in the coal industry. However, change is in the air. On April 19th, the United Mine Workers of America, the nation's largest union of coal miners, announced that it will accept the shift to renewable energy as long as the transition is a just one, aiding and providing new jobs for workers laid off from coal mining. As Earther said, quote, The announcement flies in the face of the jobs versus environmental argument that extractive industry and its allies have pushed for decades as a way to claim that climate regulations must be avoided at all costs. In truth, of course, the coal sector has been laying off workers all on its own without any new environmental regulations, end quote. The coal industry laid off 24% of its workforce between 2017 and 2020. The New York Times reported the Senate voted on March 28th to effectively reinstate an Obama-era regulation designed to clamp down on emissions of methane, a powerful climate-warming pollutant that will have to be controlled to meet President Biden's ambitious climate change promises. Taking a page from Congressional Republicans, who in 2017 made liberal use of a once obscure law to roll back Obama-era regulations, Democrats invoked the law to turn back a Trump methane rule enacted late last summer. That rule had eliminated Obama-era controls on leaks of methane, which seeps from oil and gas wells. Roughly four-fifths of U.S. coal plants are either scheduled to close by 2025 or now cost more to operate than new nearby solar or wind power would, new research shows. The May 5th analysis comes from Energy Innovation, Policy, and Technology, based in San Francisco. The work highlights the accelerating pace of the clean energy transition, even aside from the social costs of coal plant pollution. Out of the 235 plants based on coal, 182 plants, or 80%, are uneconomic or already retiring, according to the report, which counted plants in service in 2018. This means that three-fourths of the coal plants won't be competitive beyond the next few years. The costs of new solar or wind are falling faster than previously anticipated. Meanwhile, the capacity factor for existing coal plants fell to 40% last year, down from 53% in 2017. A lower capacity factor means plants are being run less often and not providing full output, which increases operating and capital costs. The energy innovations analysis does not factor in the social costs of coal-fired power plants, Those include health and environmental impacts from sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxides, and particulate pollution, as well as the plant's greenhouse gas emissions that add to human-caused climate change. The coronavirus pandemic and growing inequality will exacerbate global volatility over the coming decades, a report by top U.S. intelligence officials released last week warns. The Global Trends Report, released every four years by the National Intelligence Council, predicted the impacts of climate change, rising temperatures, intensifying extreme weather and droughts that increase food insecurity, health risks, and conflict, would accelerate the trend of mass migration and, with it, global instability. 
COVID, the report said, exposed the fragility of the world order, worsening more and cascading climate changes, ranging from disease to climate change to disruptions from new technologies and financial crises, the authors wrote. The international system, including the organizations, alliances, rules, and norms, is poorly set up to address the compounding global challenges facing populations. Under the best-case scenario, democracies would take advantage of the opportunity to use pandemic recovery efforts to reorient national and international priorities towards solutions that would plan and adapt for climate change and other crises. The warning is not new. Climate scientists saw the threat 25 years ago. We have yet to respond. A story in the New York Times says investment in new oil and natural gas projects must stop from today, and sales of gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles must halt from 2035. These are some of the milestones that the International Energy Agency said recently must be achieved for the global energy industry to achieve net-zero carbon emissions by 2050. These conclusions seem surprisingly stark for the agency, a multilateral group whose main mandate is helping ensure energy security and stability. But it has increasingly embraced a role in combating climate change under its executive director, Faith Birol. Now Birol's analysts are outlining in a report what looks like decades of disruption for the global energy industry. Oil production, for instance, will need to fall from nearly 100 million barrels a day to around 24 million a day by 2050, the report says. The agency acknowledges that the disruption of the global energy sector, which produces three-quarters of greenhouse gas emissions, could threaten 5 million jobs. The contraction of oil and natural gas production will have far-reaching implications for all the countries and companies that produce these fuels, the Paris-based group said in a news release. When it comes to remarkable feats of migration, you'll often hear about birds or salmon, but many sharks also undertake impressive journeys across the oceans. From great white sharks, some of which travel from South Africa to Australia and back, to lemon sharks which can find their way home to a tiny island in the Bahamas. For decades, scientists have wondered how these fish pull this off. Many species have a superior sense of smell, but although it may help them to orient during the final stretch, it's unlikely that smell alone could guide them across large distances. That's why many experts believe sharks navigate by sensing the Earth's magnetic field. To test this theory, Brian Keller, a shark biologist now at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, brought 20 juvenile bonnethead sharks, a hammerhead species chosen because they faithfully return home to breed, into a laboratory at Florida State University. In a paper published in the journal Current Biology last week, Keller and colleagues confirmed that bonnethead sharks can indeed use Earth's magnetic field to navigate. Learning how sharks navigate helps scientists understand where they go and to better protect those areas. Many shark species are heavily affected by overfishing and pollution. Populations of 18 oceanic shark and ray species have declined by 70% since 1970.
And now for our feature, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the I-69 River Bridge. So Hoosiers are concerned a proposed $975 million toll bridge connecting Indiana and Kentucky through Interstate 69 will be accessible only to vehicles, unlike similar interstate river crossings in the Midwest. The design for the bridge has not been finalized, but models for the four-lane Ohio River Bridge and draft project documentation show that pedestrian and bicycle access are not part of current planning, an emission that could affect disabled and low-income Hoosiers and cyclists. Increased walking and cycling by commuters could cut down on greenhouse gas emissions emitted by vehicles on the potentially busy crossing. This is Gary Davis, Community and Government Relations Liaison for the nonprofit organization Indiana Trails. There was very little outreach at all to trails groups, to hiking groups, to walking and running groups, certainly to the disabled and folks that don't own automobiles. Uh, which is a hefty percentage down that area. And it makes perfect sense that in designing a new bridge like this, why wouldn't you have accommodations for some folks to get across that bridge to connect these two cities that are not now safely connected for non-motorized transit? Why wouldn't you have a way for people to connect with each other on both sides of the Ohio River in a non-polluting fashion? The Interstate 69 Ohio River Crossing is a joint effort between the states of Kentucky and Indiana to link Henderson, Kentucky and Evansville, Indiana via Interstate 69 that will eventually replace the twin bridges of US-41. The project will be completed in two parts, the first of which begins construction in 2022 and will be done completely in Kentucky. The second part of the project will extend from US-60 in Kentucky over the Ohio River and stop at the Veterans Memorial Parkway in Evansville. The design for that part of the project will not be finalized until about 2025. Davis said there is still time for project planners to incorporate access for pedestrians and cyclists who currently have few options for crossing the Ohio River. Between Evansville and Jeffersonville, about a dozen bridges span the Ohio River. Only several bridges connecting Jeffersonville and Louisville allow pedestrians and cyclists to cross safely. West of Louisville, unless you are the most courageous experienced bicycle rider or heaven forbid uh, a hiker or walker there is no safe way for you to cross the ohio river west of louisville until you get to the ferry boat in southern illinois which is uh, not necessarily easily accessible in recent years governor eric holcomb has made improving state infrastructure one of the main pillars of his agenda through the next level connections program two of the main aims of the program are to link communities across the state with hiking biking and riding trails and completing major road projects through the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, the program has awarded more than $50 million to regional and local trails programs, some of which provide transportation connections between communities. Since the Next Level Connections program was introduced in 2018, the Indiana Department of Transportation has begun to attempt to advance active transportation, which includes walking and cycling in the state. But Davis said INDOT remains focused on cars and trucks, a stance which could stunt the design possibilities and uses of the new bridge. We believe that the Indiana Department of Transportation can no longer be seen as just focused on cars and trucks. Their insight and their overview has to be much more broad and including things like protected safe pathways on major bridges. Other Midwestern states have already incorporated pedestrian and bike friendly designs into other cross river mega bridges. The Interstate 74 Mississippi River Bridge connecting Iowa and Illinois will feature a 14 foot wide multi-use path on one side of the bridge. 
The six-lane Gordie Howe International Bridge connecting Detroit and Windsor, Canada, will feature a dedicated multi-use path for pedestrians and cyclists. We don't have to look too far for some really great state-of-the-art examples of what's happening in the industry as far as design and architecture and engineering and so forth. Davis said there's no reason why Indiana should not have a comparable bridge, especially since Hoosiers will be paying for part of the project. The project will also be partially funded by the federal government. The Federal Highway Administration, which will have the final say when the design plan is submitted by Kentucky and Indiana, supports incorporating pedestrian and bicycle paths into infrastructure. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, the former South Bend mayor, who now runs a department that oversees the FHWA, has also voiced support for cycling infrastructure. Several Indiana organizations, including the Hoosier Environmental Council, Evansville Trails Coalition, the Hoosier Rails to Trails Council, and the Greenways Foundation have also expressed support for the addition of a pedestrian and bicycle path into the bridge crossing design. Indot officials said the crossing will maintain existing bicycle and pedestrian access on either side of the bridge, but the final design has not yet been finalized. The public can still help decide the future Interstate 69 Ohio River crossing design through the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet, which is accepting public comments on its statewide transportation improvement plan until June 8th. Check out our website for a link and to see the comments submitted by Indiana Trails, Evansville Trails Coalition, and Better Transit Now. For ECA Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. The Monroe County Public Library is beginning its summer hiking club with a hike to the Pate Hollow Trailhead at the Paintown State Recreation Area on Wednesdays from 2 to 3 p.m. on Zoom. Take your hike and then share your photos, recordings, and experiences on Zoom. Register at mcpl.info calendar. The Nature Sound Series will take place on Friday, May 21st in the Howard Young Pavilion at Olcott Park, beginning at 6.30 p.m. The theme is Pollinators with musical guest Harpist Erzabet Gall. Please continue to social distance while attending the concert. Take a Trail 3 hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, May 22nd from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Join the naturalists at the Twin Caves parking lot for a moderately rugged one-and-a-half-hour walk through three nature preserves with many wonderful natural resources to talk about. Join the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area's Naturalist and birder Jim Brown at the Visitor Center for Birding 101 on Saturday, May 22nd, between 1 and 3 p.m. You will learn the basics of bird watching, including identification, using optics, and wildlife viewing etiquette. Face masks and social distancing are required. Registration is required at birding101 underscore goosepondfwa eventbrite.com. McCormick's Creek State Park will have a Snappers Sliders and the Statehouse Quarry hike on Sunday, May 23rd from 2 to 3.30 p.m. The old Statehouse Quarry holds importance for Indiana's history and is a prime example of Indiana's unique geological past. On this hike, you will learn how the quarry is serving its new ecological purpose at the park. Meet the naturalist, Jessica, at the CCC Rec Hall for a short hike.
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.